Well, good day, everyone, and a special welcome to the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. We've waited for weeks and months for this particular day when we're all gathered together at the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe some of you are in your living room uh, sitting here watching the particular telecast or uh, sermon that I have prepared for today. Uh, To all of you, I extend a warm welcome. And so it is that we come to the opportunity for us to consider the meaning of this day, the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was one of those typical summer days, the heat caused by um, the previous hot days that had come before, uh, caused mirages to dance on the horizon in the desert lands where the man was sitting in uh, the door of his tent. The hot, dry wind, known to the Bedouin as the Kamasin, uh, had been blowing for days, uh, but had now stopped. And Abram, as his name was at that time before he was called Abraham, was sitting in the door of his tent. And he looked out, and he saw three figures approaching him out of the mirage. And as they came closer, he could see that they were special persons. He also recognized the one in the middle, the one who was leading the other two, and he knew who it was. It was his friend Yahweh. It was his friend, the God of Israel to come. Abraham Abraham was the grandfather of Israel, and yet this person, Yahweh, the word of the Old Testament, had become Abraham's friend. And so as he approached, the one who was to become Jesus Christ of Nazareth spoke to him. And Abram, listen carefully. Could you imagine what it would be like to have Jesus Christ knock on your door? and you let him into your home? Well, that's what this was the equivalent of. Abram didn't know that he was coming, and yet as he did, he was able to speak to him. Let's see what happened here in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 1. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the ground, and said, My Lord, have I found favor in your, in your sight? Do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh your hearts. After that... You may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. Wow, what would have you said if it was Jesus Christ knocking on your door? I'm sure you would have invited him, invited him in for a cup of tea or a coffee or uh, some other refreshing drink, cool drink, because it was the heat of summer. Well, we need to understand something. What Yahweh, or the one who became Jesus Christ, was doing 
was he was approaching Abram's tent. Now, another word for tent is tabernacle. And so here was Abram sitting in the door of his tabernacle, and Jesus Christ approached him. Now, why do you think I've chosen this example to introduce this sermon? Well, I'm going to tell you. God wants to come and tabernacle with us. He wants to live with us for eternity. He wants to have that sort of communion with us, that meeting of minds with us, that even social uh, contact with us. That means that we will be able to sit down and have a meal. In this particular story, Abraham sent his servant out, he killed the fatted calf and he brought the meat in and he served it to the three men. Well, they weren't men, as you know. And that is the way you and I are going to fellowship with God and Jesus Christ way on beyond the millennium because God is going to tabernacle with us as our friend. Jesus Christ will be our friend. The angels, the saints, all those who have ever lived and have been faithful to God and to Jesus Christ are going to come to you and say, Hello, my friend, how are you? And you'll put your arm on their shoulder and their, their arms will be on your shoulder. And you will be able to sit down and fellowship. And that's what this week is about. This week is about us becoming more like Jesus Christ. Spending a whole eight days thinking about, talking about God and his plan for mankind. You are the privileged one to be called out of this world and to come into the presence of God and to share in the knowledge of the truth that he has for you. I know you know it, but do you get excited about it? Does it just make you almost tingle and get goosebumps when you think about what lies ahead for us? what the opportunities are that are there for each one of us. In this life, we will never know how much God the Father and Jesus Christ yearn for the time when we're all together as one family, when we will be there, where we'll be the Father's sons and daughters. We'll be gathered together enjoying good food, good wine, good fellowship, when we will tabernacle together with them. More specifically, I want to show you today that though God will use the restored nation of Israel as his sample or example nation, he has not forgot the other nations. And this sermon is, much as, about, is as much about Israel as it is about the rest of mankind and God's plan to work with every one of us. You know, I have been privileged to visit 13 countries in Africa. I've been in Lagos, Nigeria, and Accra, Ghana, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, Harare, Zimbabwe, Johannesburg, South Africa. I've been to Swaziland and Lesotho. I've been to Mauritius. 
to other countries in Africa. And as I go to these places, I see people just like you and me, with the same worries and the same happiness, mothers holding little babies, children playing in the streets. And it doesn't matter what color they are. They're just people, all made in God's image. And we're looking forward to seeing them fulfill their potential. Let's turn, if we will, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Because this is the beginning of the story. In fact, you might say, where do we begin? We begin at the beginning. And Genesis chapter 3 is the place where God is dealing with Adam and Eve. And uh, you know the story pretty well. So let's read from verse 8 where it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. You know, Jesus Christ, God of the Old Testament, had come to tabernacle with Adam and Eve. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called away to Adam and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. You know, brethren, This time of the Feast of Tabernacles is the time where we turn back the clock, where we take ourselves back into the presence of God and we're not afraid to be in his presence, but rather we rejoice in the fact that we are here gathered together as brothers and sisters in Christ to fellowship and to Rejoice at the Feast of Tabernacles. So at the beginning, things were good. But what happened? You know the story. The the son disobeyed the father. Now, I'm sure you've been in a family situation or you've seen family situations where mum and dad and sons and daughters get on well. They, they joke together. They laugh together. They play sports together, they hike together, they go to church together, and things are good. And then something happens, maybe with a 15-year-old son or a 13-year-old daughter, whereas in the past there was a closeness to mum and dad. Now it is as if they're hiding. They become sullen. They don't respond to mum and dad's questions like they used to they don't laugh like they used to something's happened maybe they're upset with the way mum and dad spoke to them maybe they're having trouble with friends at school maybe there are other issues but that relationship between mum and dad and the kids has become tense and that's a sad thing when that happens because all of the warmth and the closeness the openness and the relaxed conversation has now started to disappear and is replaced, as I said, with suspense or suspicion, you might say, and things are no longer what like they were. Well, that's what happened between Adam and Eve. Notice Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. <clears throat> This is a scripture pertaining to 
God's relationship with us. You know, sometimes we think God has turned his back on us. And if we turn our back on him, do you know the way we see it? We actually think God's turned his back on us because we can't see him. But we have turned our back on him. And the Feast of Tabernacles is a time for us to restore that relationship with God where we are at one with him and we're friends and we can talk and laugh. Have you ever prayed and laughed with God? I have. Have you ever really told him how you felt? Of course you have. And that's what we need to be working toward all the time. Now, I have to admit, my my prayers are not always, you know, absolutely top flight, always the best, uh, dynamic, uh, powerful. You know, sometimes my prayers, have, because of the nature of them, mean that there are things that I have to pray about day after day after day. You know, I've got cancer at the moment. And so I have to ask God day after day that he will heal me and then believe that he will. And I do. And thank you for your prayers, everyone. I really have appreciated the the humbling experience of people saying, I pray for you every day. And it's just simply amazing. But notice Isaiah 59, verse 1. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear, but for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Now, that's pretty strong language. But I think if we're honest, we know that that is what happens to us from time to time with God. I want you to make this Feast of Tabernacles a turning point to where you recreate a strong bond and friendship and closeness with God that is relaxed, that is confident, where you know that you're loved by Him. And as you do, He will turn His ears and heart and eyes toward you as well. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. You know, it is um, an opportunity and a privilege for us to be able to approach him. Look at Isaiah 55. We just have come from a a conference uh, here in Charlotte, the General Conference of Elders. And Dr. Meredith, in his closing comments, spent the whole time referring to this one, one principle that we need to seek God. Look out for him. Go and find him. (laughs) Do you remember when we were children, we used to play hide and seek? Well, God's not hiding. But sometimes we've got to go and find him because we've hidden ourselves from him. Look what it says here in Isaiah 55 and in verse 6. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways 
and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God has not gone off in a huff. Hmm. They won't talk to me, so I won't talk to them. <laughs> and he's not offended. He's not gone off and is, is sulking in a corner. He's more big-minded than that. He's been dealing with men for 6,000 years. Do you think you're the, you're the first one that he's ever had to sort of reach out to and put out his hand and say, hey, come, let us tabernacle together. Let's talk together. Let's be together. You know, we who are selfish, impetuous, would react that way. You know, we would get offended and sulk and go off in a huff. But God sees the big picture. So what will he do with us as he strives to bring us back into his, you might say, orbit or his realm or his circle of influence? Well, every moment as it unfolds, the plan of God is to restore the whole world not just us, but the whole world to equilibrium and balance that existed in the past. Look at Acts chapter 3. This is how Peter worded this particular process of God restoring the whole world to him and to his way of thinking. Acts chapter 3. And we're going to read verse 19, scripture that you're well familiar with. It says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, when heaven, whom heaven must receive until the times, listen to this, the times of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So there is going to be a restoration, and the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the restoration of all things. And it's going to culminate in God being able to accept us when we are sinless, perfect, and pure. Now, for those of us in the first resurrection who will be spirit beings and pure, it means that when we are changed from mortal to immortal, we will be able to be with our heavenly father at the wedding of his son to his bride, the church. Let's turn, if we will, now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where the concept of a tabernacle is established quite clearly. Second Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, that is, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. Now a tent is a tabernacle, and so our body is a tabernacle. And as it says here, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And it's that building that Jesus Christ is going to bring to earth when he comes for us to inhabit. The Feast of Tabernacles is about changing our physical tent 
our mortal tabernacle to a tabernacle of God. And so this week, you will get a far-off glimpse of the joy of being in that different world. Notice Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Hebrews 9, verse 11. And we're going to start in verse... uh, verse, uh, Sorry, Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11. Sorry about that. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11. It says, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place, once for all having obtained eternal redemption. And so we come to a heavenly tabernacle when we pray each morning and evening, to our great God. Cup of tea. (laughs) Well, we will be able to tabernacle with God in the heavenly tabernacle and temple. Hey, have you ever imagined it? You know, the other morning I started my prayer and I started talking about God and his throne and I tried to picture and imagine what his throne was like. King David's Sorry, King Solomon's throne was made out of ivory and gold. Aren't they two beautiful colors, ivory and gold? And especially if the gold is overlaying the ivory in filigree. And then there were these lions that stood uh, on each one of the steps that went up to the throne. Well, that was a physical uh, um, temple. And a physical throne. Just imagine what God's throne's like. With a sea of glass right out in front of him. With 24 elders seated around him. And Jesus Christ at his right hand. Imagine the music. Imagine the sound of tens of thousands of angels singing hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh. You know, the senses. We have five physical senses. Are there more than five spiritual senses? I don't know. But it seems like there could be. Imagine the beautiful smell of flowers, the aroma wafting through and across the the throne room. Well, that's where we can approach God. We approach him every morning in our prayers like that. But in reality, when we are made Sons of God, spirit beings, we will be able to go into the throne room of God itself, himself. That is just hard to believe. Let's look at Hebrews 4, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Here it says, Seeing then we have a great high priest, who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So let's take a glimpse, a sneak preview, into the unfolding of God's great plan. 
It started just a few days ago, the Day of Atonement. And that's when the process of removing the one who is the source of all evil and sin, that is Satan the devil, there would be no chance of bringing about a restoration of all things while ever he is around. Let me tell you, he'd destroy it as soon as the process was started. But with him out of the way, Jesus Christ can start at ground zero and rebuild that which is broken down and that which has been destroyed. But it will not be built on the foundation of this world. It will be built on a new world. And so where do we start? We start small. That's where we start. Don't think for one moment that Jesus Christ is going to wave a magic wand over the world and everything will blossom and, and come, become beautiful. I think the best way of describing it is how the water that bubbles up under the throne of Christ and flows down out of the tabernacle and half of it goes down this way and half of it goes that way. The half that goes this way goes down to the the Red Sea and all of the pollution of the Dead Sea and the and all of the salt and everything that is impure there, that is restored and refreshed. That which comes out this way goes down to the Mediterranean Sea and the, the waters will be refreshed. The fish will multiply. The, the, the cloudy, murky... Um, Mediterranean will become crystal clear and beautiful. People will swim and, and fish and laugh and, and have a great time on the beaches of, this, of the world tomorrow. No fear of syringes from HIV suffering, you know, people who, who use syringes and, and shoot up. None of that. No broken glass bottles to cut your feet on. Just a beautiful, beautiful world. All of that lies ahead for us. But the process is going to take time. And so God will be working through us to restore his world order. Let's look at Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah 12 verse 7. This is a prophecy for those days. And when we turn to Zechariah 12, we realize that Jesus Christ is going to be talking here to about the people who will be living at that time. Zechariah 12 and verse 7 says, The Lord will save the tents, that is the tabernacles of Judah, first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. Judah is the scepter tribe. And they will be at the very leading edge of the restoration of all things. King David will be resurrected and will be king over all of Israel under Jesus Christ, but over all the tribes of Israel. And Judah will be the lead nation at that time. Notice what it says. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who was feeble among them in that day shall be like David. 
and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So those nations from the east and from the south and the, and the, uh, the north that have come to destroy Jerusalem, they will be destroyed. Notice in Isaiah 66, verse 20. Isaiah chapter 66. Wonderful chapter talking about the restoration of all things and how God's law will be kept. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 20, it says this. It says, Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. As the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord, and I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. So what's going to happen is the nations of Israel that have been punished for their iniquity and their sin and lawlessness, God will remember them and he will bring a remnant of those people out of Israel. It says one-third one of Israel will be destroyed by famine, one-third by the sword, and one-third will go into captivity. And then it says in Amos chapter 5 that only one-tenth of that one-third, so that's one-thirtieth, three percent of, of Israel will survive. Now you do the math. Work out just how many and how few people will be brought into the kingdom. But here's the point. We just read there that the Gentile nations will bring those people who were in captivity on mules and horses and they will bring them from all over the world. It'll take a long time for the captives in Australia to make their way across into Southeast Asia and then up through the Malay Peninsula and across through Burma into India, from India into Pakistan, from Pakistan across to ultimately Afghanistan and then down through modern-day Iraq, through Jordan and into Israel. And so people from South Africa people from New Zealand, people from Canada and the United States will be brought to Jerusalem to reestablish the, the true, well, to establish the true kingdom of God. And Judah will lead us. And we will look to David as our king at that time. Notice Isaiah chapter 49. This is a really beautiful scripture pertaining to that time. Isaiah 49, and we're going to start here in verse 5. It says, And now says the Lord, and now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob, that's Israel, back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, 
and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. A light. Something that you can see in the darkness and walk toward. He says, I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. South Americans from Tierra del Fuego. You know, people from the frozen wastes of Canada, the Inuit, the people from Mongolia, from the tip of Sri Lanka, Aborigines from Australia, people from all over the world will look to Israel as a bright light and to travel and walk toward them. Ezekiel chapter 5. I'm just going to be going through these scriptures to paint a picture of what it's going to be like for a restoration of all things. Ezekiel chapter 5 and verse 12. Remember, of course, that Ezekiel uh, wrote this uh, these words because God commissioned him to go to Israel. Problem was, the Israel that you knew about in the old Israel had already gone into captivity. So when Ezekiel talks about Israel going into captivity, he's talking about the end time Israel. That's our people. And so in Ezekiel chapter 5 and verse 12, notice what it says. It says, One third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst, and one third shall fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter another third to all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. And then, as I said, the other scripture is Amos chapter 5 and verse 3. You know, people think, wow, it couldn't really be that bad, could it? You imagine. You know, Australia has a population of 22 million at the moment. One-thirtieth is not even a million. Australians will go into the promised land and be brought out of captivity. New Zealanders... Far fewer than that. Only a, a scattering. The United Kingdom, 62 million people, leaving just 2 million to come out of captivity. Isaiah, um, Amos chapter 5 and verse 3. Notice what it says here. It says, For thus says the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Very sobering statistics. But God brings that group of people to a deep repentance. And if we look at Jeremiah chapter 31, we will see how deep that repentance is for the nation of Israel. We're going to turn here to Jeremiah chapter 31 this time. Jeremiah 31. You know, God wants to fellowship with us. 
He wants to tabernacle with us, but we have to change before we can come into his house. You imagine if you had neighbors that were smelly and dirty, you know, you might open the door to the front door to them and say, yes, can, uh, what can I do for you? Well, we'd like a cup of sugar, please. Well, just wait there, just wait there. <laughs> but you know, God just doesn't let anyone into his house, his tabernacle. We have to be washed clean. We have to have clean clothes on. We need to be pure in heart and mind for God to accept us. And that comes by Jesus Christ living his life in us. Notice here in Jeremiah 31, verse 18. This is, of course, the uh, talking about uh, Israel repenting. God says, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me, and I was chastened, or chastised. Like an untrained bull, restore me, and I will return. Restore me. That's the theme of this sermon. The restoration of all things so that we can tabernacle with God. Verse 19, surely after my turning, this is Ephraim speaking, I repented, and afterward I, struck, I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. I love that expression, he says, and after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. Imagine, you can't see this, but here's my hand. Listen. Oh, oh you stupid thing. Fancy making all those mistakes. Fancy being so stupid. That's what Ephraim's going to do. And Manasseh. And all the tribes of Israel. We're all going to, in one voice, say to God, we're sorry, God. We really got it wrong and do you know what he's going to say oh are you really sorry yes sir we really are okay if you're really sorry I'm going to be able to use you I'm going to be able to work with you but you can't go back to the way you've been you're going to have to be a new person a different person and we'll say yes sir <laughs> so it's going to be great Notice Ezekiel 43. This is a, a great section of Scripture. Right from Ezekiel 40 to 48 is a, uh, an explanation of how the, the, the new temple will be built in Jerusalem. And it'll be beautiful. It'll be made of the finest quality materials. The east gate of the temple will only ever be open to let Jesus Christ come in. And after he has come in, it will be shut. And then the, the rest of the temple will be used for the purpose of offering sacrifices. You know, the Israelites, when they come back from captivity, without Satan there to, <clears throat> to tempt them and to create an evil and wicked world, the people who were born in that generation and the next and the next and the next are really going to have a hard time to come to repentance. They'll have a hard time to see 
just how sinful they are. And so in Ezekiel 43, verse 1, it says, Afterward he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces towards the east, and I've just mentioned that to you. Let's go to Isaiah 40, Ezekiel 44. Ezekiel 44, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which is faces towards the east, but it was shut. And he said to me, This gate shall be shut, shall not be opened. No man shall enter by it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. And then it says, a little further on, in verse 9, it says, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or flesh, shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. But later they are going to be able to come. And then chapter 45, verse 18. Thus says the Lord God, In the first month of the first day of the month you shall take a young bull without blemish. And it talks here about keeping the holy days. Fourteenth day of the month, verse 21, you shall observe the Passover, a feast of seven days. In the seventh month, verse 25, on the fifteenth day of the month, that's today, as uh, at the feast he shall do likewise for seven days, according to the sin offering, the bird offering, the grain offering, and the oil. So there will be offerings during the millennium in Jerusalem. But now notice Zechariah chapter 14. Now, I love this scripture. You know, at the, at the moment, the Jewish people, the, the Jews in the nation of Israel are hated by their neighbors. And yet here in Zechariah 14, in verse 8, it says, And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, and half toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name one. Chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 8, verse 20. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, Inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord, and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will all go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, think about this, everyone, You tell me if a Palestinian would do this today. Would a Syrian or an Iraqi, an Arab of any country, do what is going to happen in the the future, the millennium? It says, yes, many peoples and strong, verse 22. Verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. (laughs) 
What do you think of that? Isn't that a great scripture? And so God uses Judah as his lead nation. And then the rest of the tribes of Israel, they follow. And then little by little, the nations surrounding Jerusalem will come to follow God and his ways. And so in Zechariah chapter 14, where we just were, and verse 8, Well, we read verse 8. Let's go to verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which come against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's look at First Kings chapter 10 for a, you might say, a... An example that happened 3,000 years ago, 1 Kings chapter 10, that was indicative of this same spirit of the Gentile nations wanting to come up to Jerusalem. It's 1 Kings chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 1. 1 Kings, of course, you remember the name of this queen. She came up from Ethiopia. It says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue. Verse 10, She gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great quantity, and precious stones. In verse 6, she said to the king, It was a true report, which I heard in my own land, about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes, and indeed the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your men, and happy are these your servants. Isn't that amazing? That during that period of time, in that early time of the millennium, just as the Queen of Sheba came up to Solomon, so her descendants, because the, the kings of Ethiopia today are descended from Solomon and, and the Queen of Sheba. They know that. When I go to Ethiopia, they tell you that all the time. And so her descendants will do the same thing, and they will go up to the millennial Solomon, Jesus Christ. And the same words will be spoken. And not just the queen of Ethiopia, of Sheba, but the, the kings of, of China and Japan, the leaders of India and of Russia. They will all come to Jesus Christ and they will bow down and worship him and acknowledge that Israel 
are the people of God. And that the Jewish people, the people who have been persecuted by so many nations, they will have to acknowledge that they are God's people. What a wonderful thing this is. And instead of fighting against Christ, fighting against Israel, these nations will want to be a part of the action. Look at Isaiah 27, verse 6. Isaiah 27 and verse 6. A prophecy for the world tomorrow. Those who come he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Wow! What does that mean? How will Israel fill the face of the world with fruit? Two ways. One, the descendants of Israel will go out as teachers to the nations. And they'll bring the whole package. They will teach godly agriculture, godly sanitation, godly city building and design. They will bring to those nations the law of God. The Sabbath will be kept and the Feast of Tabernacles. And leaders of nations will go up from year to year to represent their nations at the Feast of Tabernacles, dressed in all of their beautiful costumes, colorful, beautiful saris from India, gorgeous silk clothing from China and Japan. There will be people there from Nepal with peacock feathers, sewn onto their clothing. There will be people with gold and silver and precious stones in their clothing and on their crowns and their tiaras. And you and I will teach them and show them. So that's the first fruit that, the, that Israel will plant. We will plant our people and our children in those countries. Now, people will be, accuse Israel once again of colonizing like the British Empire. Well, it will be a lot like the British Empire. You know, in the very beautiful piece of music that you use in the United States for your um, entrance march for graduation ceremonies, the British use it to sing the fact that God who made Britain mighty will make her mightier yet. I could sing it for you, but I won't do so. <laughs> That's right. God will use Ephraim as a chief colonizing nation, but not to, to squander and plunder the nations that they go to, but to serve and give to those nations so that those nations will bear more fruit, better agriculture, better work practices, godly ways of doing business, no bribery, 
No heavy taxation. Just one-tenth of your profits. That's That's all God will ask for. Oh, what a wonderful world. Notice here in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. One of my favorite scriptures. I, I'll, I'll show you why. It's really quite interesting. Isaiah 49. This shows where God's people went to after they left their captivity in, in the Caucasus. Isaiah 49 and verse 6. It says, indeed, he says, I think I read this to you, didn't I? Is it too small a thing? Yeah, uh, let me just find if it says it here. Talks about. It should talk about the. Hmm. Oh yeah, look at this here. I didn't read this before. It says in verse nine that you may say to the prisoners, "Go forth." To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. This is how the Israel will come from all the different nations into Jerusalem. It says, They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither shall the sun, sh- neither heat nor sun shall strike them, for he shall have mercy on them, will lead them. Even by the springs of water he will guide them. Just a beautiful description of Israel coming. That's earlier in the, in the piece, as they come into uh, into um, Jerusalem. Now, those who are not of Israel, who are foreigners, will also want to follow God's way. So they will be allowed to worship and sacrifice in Jerusalem. It says in uh, in God's word, "My house shall be called a prayer, a house of prayer, for all nations." Just imagine, you could be a vital part of a team of spirit-born sons of God who go out with qualified humans, doctors, engineers, educators, to visit the people in far-off lands. It's going to be just wonderful. You know, the Gentile people have always either loved Israel or hated Israel. If Israel was following God, the Gentile nations loved Israel. When the Israelite nations were rebelling against God, the Gentile nations hated Israel. You know, the Gentiles are not doing it because they want to. It's because God's going to use them to punish them. You think about Rahab and Ruth. They were Gentiles. And yet God used them to marry into the line which later became the line of Jesus Christ through King David. In Acts chapter 8, we have the example, we'll look at that, of a man who loved Israel, but he wasn't an Israelite. Acts chapter 8 and verse 27. This is the story of a man by the name of um, we didn't have a name. He was called an Ethiopian eunuch. And it says that he was uh, on his way back, uh, going through Gaza in the desert. And so he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of her treasury, 
had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. Verse 30, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. What was a Gentile reading Isaiah for? Well, he was following God. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And so he read Isaiah and, of course, he ended up baptizing him. Did you read that? It says, how could I know unless someone guides me, someone teaches me? That's what we'll be doing. Imagine going, and you'll be able to speak all languages too, by the way. Ultimately, there'll be one language, but not initially. And so we will be able to teach these people. But, of course, there will be those who will continue as enemies of Israel. And we know about Gog and Magog, of course. Mr. Armstrong said in his book, The World Tomorrow, what it will be like. He said it will take three generations before the nations will submit to God. Now, don't think it will be easy to administer the law of God. Hey, maybe as a spirit being, you'll be shot at by with, uh, with machine guns. And the bullets will just go through you. <laughs> and you're sort of a bit like, you know, some sort of alien. When you won't be an alien, but, you know, you'll be able to walk towards them and they'll, oh, we can't kill these people. <laughs> I have a vivid imagination. <laughs> anyway, you know it's going to take wisdom and tact to win these people over. Some of them are going to be scared of you. And when you see it, see them, or when they see you, they'll go and hide and you'll have to go through and say, hey, hey, come on out. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm here to help you. And slowly, little children will come around from behind their mother's skirts. And after a short time, they'll be coming up to you and you'll be able to pat them on their head and sit down and talk with them. The mothers and the fathers will listen to you. Oh, it's just going to be wonderful. And all of that is lying ahead for us. And just as we will be brought to God to tabernacle with him, we will bring others to tabernacle with God. You want to be a part of that? Well, that's what this day pictures. The restoration of all things. Notice in 2 Peter 1 verse 12. This is an amazing scripture because we return to the theme of the tabernacle. 2 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 12. Peter said, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tabernacle or tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent or my tabernacle, just as our Lord Jesus showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. But let's have a look at the pièce de résistance the scripture that says it best of all. And really we've been building up to this concluding scripture 
right the way from the very beginning when we talked about Adam and Eve withdrawing themselves from God's family. Now we have the restoration of all things and we have God's people being in a position to receive the wonderful plan of salvation for all of them. And that's going to come when Jesus Christ and God the Father actually fulfill the meaning of this day. Look at it. Revelation 20 in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid, a hand on, he, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Then, notice verse 7. When the thousand years are expired, Satan will be re released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. But then, it says in verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were, it should be, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan and the demons will suffer and be tormented forever. It's the very doctrine that Satan has put into the Catholic Church, that sinners go to hell and frizzle and fry forever and ever and ever. That's his fate, not human beings. But now notice Revelation 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Brethren, that's your destiny, to tabernacle with God and for him to tabernacle with you.